Father, this morning we need your word. We need your spirit to illumine this truth, to write it upon our hearts, to remind us of all that you have said and to affirm all of your good promise. So we ask that you speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. In Jesus' name, amen. This summer, while away on sabbatical, my sons and I had the opportunity to enjoy a day out together, and so we set up a fairly ambitious hiking trail. It was when we were in the village of Zermatt near the Matterhorn. And there was a hiking trail that ran along the ridges of the valley that was some several thousand meters up above the village where we were staying. We were moving in a northerly direction away from the Matterhorn, and as the day began, we had spectacular scenery on what you could consider was a walk in the park. Five miles in just under two hours, it was delightful, temperature was perfect, views and photography were simply indescribable. We stopped for lunch at a small village known as Tash. We had a small bite to eat. We refilled our water. And we were on the way then to the third longest suspension bridge in the world. And so we were curious to see this suspension bridge, and we asked someone about the trail ahead. We received some mixed reports, but we weren't quite sure. It's a famous trail. It's known as the Europeweg, and we were just going to walk this next section, make it to the suspension bridge, descend sharply to another village and then catch the train back home. That was the plan for the day. While the morning hike had been delightful, the afternoon hike was very different. When we crossed over the valley at that small village of Tash, the entire scenery began to change. My boys joked that we had exited the Shire and gone straight into Mordor. And that is about the best description I can give you in terms of scenery. It went from lush green and watered and smooth, beautiful hiking trails along ridge lines to rocky and steep. There was no trail. There were avalanche zones that stretched for miles where you would see periodically caves that said, in case of avalanche, run here. And so as we made our way up and down, our pace slowed to a crawl. We began to doubt that we would ever make the suspension bridge. There was lots of blame being cast as to who was responsible for this dreadful idea of trying to make it. While the first five miles had gone gloriously, the last seven miles were now moving at a snail's pace. We were sketching our way along cliffs with uh, ropes and metal cables. There were places where you could plunge over 2,000 feet, and I don't do heights. My sons were laughing at me. We ran out of water. We finally made it to the suspension bridge. We arrive at the bridge, and then there was only 1.6 miles left in the day. That was the best news I had received all day. 1.6 miles left. Certainly, we can do this. But then we began to look at the map, and it became a little more clear what that 1.6 miles was going to include as we descended from the suspension bridge down to the village of Rhonda. That was going to be over 2,600 feet of vertical drop. Now, if you know that great formula um, of, of slope intercept, you'll be able to figure it out. But this was a tremendous drop. 
and legs were tired, knees were aching, feet hurt, and it was down, like straight down. It was the longest hour of my life. I could have thought of anything I'd rather be doing at that point after that day. Suddenly, we round a corner, and I see the first signs of civilization. I could see the parking lot at the head of the trail. I was ready to dance. It was such good news. This was finally going to be over. We were all so excited to make it to the train. And as we rounded the corner there to enter into the parking lot, we passed a young woman who was very well kitted out. You could tell that everything she had was brand new. All the gear, the poles, the backpacks, the water bottles, she was loaded up and she was ready. And then she asked us this question as we passed her in the turn about 200 yards from the parking lot. She said, how much further to the bridge? And it was at that moment that I had to make a decision. Here, she had this daunting climb ahead of her. Now, granted, it was only a little bit over a mile and a half, but it was over 2,600 feet up. It was late in the day. She didn't seem to be well equipped beyond her gear for what was coming. And I had to answer the question to myself, what does she need from me right now to sustain what lies ahead? Because this is monstrous. What does she need? And friends, there's a similar dynamic when we arrive at Genesis 15. Abraham received a promise from God in Genesis 12 that he would be granted descendants, that he would be blessed, and that those descendants would become a blessing to all the families of the earth, that the nations were going to be blessed through these descendants that Abraham would be given. And then we see that that blessing was to flow because Abraham's descendants were going to be given a particular land, and it was the promised land, the land of Canaan. And then as we've gone through chapters 12 through 14, we've seen a series of circumstances in which the idea of descendants and also of inheriting the land were challenged. That is that they were under threat. Abraham fails, and Abraham also walks in faith. We see a mixed character. But then what we find here in chapter 15 is God comes to Abraham, and he reaffirms his promise once more. If you follow in verse 1, Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. Abram has been walking with God through these different circumstances, in his failures and also in his successes. And then he has a question for God and a complaint for God. Note what he says in verses 2 and 3. O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. This is Abram's concern. God has promised him descendants, and what's the problem? He doesn't have a child. And so, God, you promised this, and yet this man who doesn't even belong to my family is going to be an heir. And then Abraham furthers what he says, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
And so he asks God a question, and he voices a complaint in keeping with God's promise. He's saying, yes, you promised this, but what's going to be a sign that confirms that you're going to make good on the promise? Abraham's question and complaint are honest. I don't think they're cynical, and I don't think they're exactly doubting. He had received a promise from God, but he was not exactly sure how that promise was going to work out. But here's the thing. This is what God knew. Abraham was 200 yards into the trail. He was just starting. The events from chapter 12 to chapter 15 happened in quick succession relatively. Abraham initially received the promise from God when he was 75 years old, and he's not far removed from that age at this point in Genesis 15. He will be 100 years old when he actually sees the fruition, the first fruits of the promise that God gives him. He's just at the head of the journey. And so what did Abraham need in order to sustain himself for the journey ahead? What was it going to require, given that all God was going to take him through in this journey of faith? And in answering this question, we'll also see what we need, because we too walk in the same weakness of Abraham. We are like the Father in the Gospels who say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. This was Abraham's comment to God as well. And so we have received these promises, but they can be at a great distance. They can seem a long ways off, and we share in all of this weakness. And so the question for us this morning is what does God do for us in the midst of that as he sustains us in the long journey? Two things that we'll see here in Genesis 15. The first we see is that God affirms his promise. If you turn to verses 4 and 6, you see this wonderful response from God after Abraham's question and complaint. And behold, the word of the Lord came to Abraham. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. This wonderfully tender moment from God in which he interacts with Abraham in the midst of his doubts and his uncertainty and his own weakness and also in the midst of his faith and his faithfulness in which he is entrusting himself to the promise of God and yet also cling to some form of certainty, wanting to know that God was going to make good on this whole promise that was spoken to him. Now, what is happening is that this is not a new promise that's being made here in chapter 15. In fact, it's just a reaffirmation of the promise that we've seen that was made in chapter 12, and then once again in chapter 13. And God comes not with a new word to Abraham, but rather he comes with the same word, and he comes reaffirming that promise, reiterating that promise to Abraham. And what this does for us is it reiterates our own weakness. 
that God comes to Abraham and reaffirms the promise. And this directs us to our own frame and our own needs, that we too need the reaffirmation of that promise, that it is easy for us and we're susceptible to losing our way along the journey of faith, that there are threats and there are challenges, there are moments of deep discouragement, there are moments in which we are personally compromised, and what we desperately need along that path as we climb ourselves up that hill is to have the word of the Lord come to us and reaffirm the promise of God to us. Because we share in the same condition, God's promises come to fulfillment in Jesus for us. We don't live in the same moment in history as Abraham, but, Abraham, but Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of all the promises that were spoken to him. And so today we are awaiting things in the same way that Abraham was. We are awaiting the day when the families of the nations will all be blessed. They will be blessed through the one who comes in fulfillment of this promise, Jesus. They will delight in him and they will call on his name. All the nations of the earth, people from every tongue and tribe, people from every color and class will call on his name and bless him. We await the day when the inheritance... And the inheritance is not just a patch of real estate in the Middle East. But Jesus expands this inheritance into all the nations. That the meek will inherit not that small piece of turf, but the meek will inherit the earth. That is the inheritance that we await. It is ours. And we see that by faith in the future, but we don't hold it today by sight. We await the day when our bodies will not be ravaged by decay and disease. But presently, we know that these jars of clay are subject to that. And in the midst of all that, that creates pressures on our faith in the same way that Abraham was pressured. And so we need reaffirmation. And we need the reaffirmation of God that's spoken in his word. Because we don't go seeking after a new word but we simply return to what the Lord has revealed to us, his promises that are good and true in everything that is ours in Jesus. And this is what is critical for us in the journey of the Christian life, is to recognize that need for continued nurture and continued sustenance, that it's not enough to just simply say, I believed once, but it is necessary for us to come again and again to be built up and nurtured and restored and reaffirmed by God. Now, it's critical to note Abraham's response to this. He was taken outside. He was told to count the stars, which were innumerable. And God says, your descendants will be as many as these innumerable stars. And then the response of Abraham in verse 6 is striking. And it's quoted again in Romans chapter 4, very famously by the Apostle Paul. And Abraham believed the Lord, and he, that is God, counted it to him, Abraham, as righteousness. Now, in all of Abraham's struggles, in all of his weaknesses, and in all of his shortcomings, Abraham is presented to us as a hero but it's not because he's a man just of tremendous virtue. And it's not because of accomplishments. And it's not because of accolades that he has won for himself. 
But the reason that Abraham is presented to us as a hero is that Abraham had a readiness to receive these promises from God, and he embraced those promises by faith. Paul makes the argument in Romans 4 that Abraham did not work his way there. He believed. He received God's promise. He entrusted himself to God. He believed that God was going to fulfill this plan to make his descendants as many as the stars in the sky. How? He did not know. But God invested the heavenly qualities with that reaffirming power, and he takes Abraham outside, and he shows him this and reminds him of the greatness of this promise. And Abraham believes And he is given this gift of righteousness. That's just simply to say right standing with God. How Abraham is a man filled with sin and failures as we've seen. How he could have a right standing with God is in this simple way. The same way that you and I can. And it is by believing and trusting in the promise that God gives us in Jesus. Now it is important to clarify. Because we hear that faith becomes Abraham's righteousness here. It's important to clarify because Abraham is righteous, but it's not by virtue of his faith, but rather Abraham is righteous in the same way that you and I are. It's by the object of his faith. Because as Abraham looked to that promise of descendants who were to come, he was ultimately looking at the fulfillment of that promise, the end, the goal, who was none other than Jesus the son of Abraham. And Jesus comes as the fulfillment of all of this promise, and Abraham was looking to him. And friends, this is how we are righteous. We are righteous because Jesus is the one who stands at God's right hand, that he has given himself on our behalf, but as the righteous one, he now mediates for us, and he pleads as our high priest in front of God. And it's only standing in him that we have a hope to be freed from our sins and to gain this label and this status of righteous. And we do so by embracing the promises of God and trusting them. And this is the gift that God has given when he comes and he reaffirms his promise to us. The second thing that we find here, though, is that God also swears an oath to Abraham. If you follow along in verses 7 through 21, there is a strange enactment of a ceremony. But first, Abraham once again asks a question, expressing also a complaint in verse 8. And he says, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he's speaking of the promised land. He's already complained about how am I to know that I'm going to have descendants. Now he says, how am I going to know that I'm going to possess the promised land? God's response to Abraham's question is truly remarkable. You may think that he would have grown impatient with Abraham in all of his weakness, in all of his uncertainty, in all of his doubts, in all of his requests. But rather, as a father, he tenderly responds to his son, Abraham. In verses 9 and 10, we receive the instructions. Abraham was to gather animals. And so he gathered a female goat who was three years old, a heifer that was three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. These would later be the sacrificial animals used in Israel's worship. He was to split them in half and lay them across one another. 
And this is odd to us, but it was well known in the ancient Near Eastern world. This is the way that agreements were made in which two parties swore faithfulness to one another. And animals would be displayed this way. And then a party would walk through the pieces of the animals, swearing their allegiance and their fealty, their obedience to the one who was greater than them. So simply the act of what was known as cutting a covenant. And so it's not surprising in verse 12, when Abraham falls into a deep sleep and we are told that he's filled with dreadful, that there were, he's filled with dread and great darkness fell upon him. Because here Abraham was looking at this bloody display knowing the consequences of what was about to happen, that he was going to pass through these pieces and he was going to have to swear his loyalty to this God, that he was going to trust him and believe his promises. And the ceremony was designed with one specific intention, that as you pass through the pieces of those dismembered animals, you were saying, if I do not fulfill my end of this covenant, may this happen to me. It's the way ancient Near Eastern covenants were formed. And so Abraham's filled with dread. He could sense that he would never be able to fulfill this, to walk in this. How could he ever do that, given his own weakness? But then something unexpected happens. In verse 17, when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. And friends, this is the amazing thing that happens in this transaction that Abraham was dreading. He was filled with fear and doubt. Deep darkness was crushing his soul. And yet then suddenly he's not asked to pass through these dismembered animals. Rather, God himself in smoke and fire, images that are repeated later on in the story as Israel is brought out of Exodus, the pillar of fire and the cloud of smoke that God himself is the one who passes between the pieces. And the message is very clear, that in God passing through the pieces, he swears on his own life that he will fulfill this promise, that he will make good on what he says, that it's not dependent upon Abraham, it's not dependent upon his performance, it's not dependent upon his faithfulness, that this plan of God and this purpose of God to bless the nations of the earth to bring all of creation to fulfillment, to heal its disease and its sickness, to restore its original design, that God is committed to this, and God is committed to it against his own life, and he puts his own life as a pledge. And friends, God swears a promise to Abraham that he's going to do this. And we are the beneficiaries of the end of the story that we know that God indeed did pledge his life and he gave his life and he did so in order to bring about this great design. 
And brothers and sisters, as we come today, we come as those who need that great reaffirmation. The reaffirmation of all the things that are ours, all the benefits that are ours in Jesus. We need God to remind us of those, to wash over heart and mind the truth of those promises. And then we must remember that God has sworn, that he has sworn himself that he will fulfill every one of those promises and then he has demonstrated the truth of that in sending Jesus into the world. He was raised from the dead. He is the one righteous one. We have the down payment of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us. And God will certainly fulfill every word that he has spoken. And so as we come today, as we come to the table, we come not strong and filled with strength. We come like Abraham. We come poor and we come needy. And we come to a gracious father who desires to affirm every word of promise. Everything that he's spoken in the scriptures, he desires to affirm to you today. And he does so on the basis of his own commitment to that promise. And he's given his life for that. And so let's come believing and trusting today and let's feed upon our Lord Jesus by faith. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in all of our weakness. We recognize that our frames are but dust, that our hearts tremble and waver, and we often fail. But we also claim the greatness of your promise that Abraham saw as you passed through the pieces swearing on your own life that you are committed to this in an undying way and that you'll fulfill every word of promise. And so we thank you for our Lord Jesus who comes in fulfillment of that and gave himself over to death on our behalf but was raised because death could not hold him and he has conquered over sin and death and evil. And he reigns at your right hand today and we await for him. And so God, affirm us in these things, build us up, nurture us today. Remind us of the truth of all of your promise and your goodness to us. We do thank you for the gift it is to come as a family to present our supplications and our intercessions to you. You are a gracious Father who receives us through your Son and in your Spirit we approach with our prayers. And so this morning we pray that the peoples of the earth the families of the nations that you have promised to bless, that they will indeed be blessed, that men and women from every tribe and tongue may come to faith in Jesus. And so we particularly pray for our mission partners, Aldo and Abby Mondin, serving at the University of South Florida with RUF. And we ask God that you will continue to bless their ministry, that it will grow as new students gather in and hear the gospel and come to fresh faith, we pray for conversions, renewal of life. And God, we ask also that you will mature those who already believe that they will grow in faith as they endure this long journey, being reaffirmed and renewed by you day by day. We also pray for all in authority, especially for our governor, Ron DeSantis. 
We ask God that you will endow him with wisdom, that he will be able to promote justice, that he will be able to restrain evil, that he will be able to uphold integrity and truth in our state. Give him what he needs, O oh God, to serve you well in the office that you've granted to him. And we pray this morning and are mindful of those who are grieving in our state from Hurricane Ian. We also pray for all those who have been displaced and those who have suffered tremendous loss. God, we ask that you provide for every one of their needs. We thank you for the opportunity to partner, to care, to extend help to those who are helpless. God, allow aid to be freely distributed. Will mercy come? God, will you bring renewal? And will you direct people through this awful tragedy to hope and life in yourself? We also pray for all in our congregation who grieve. We pray for those who are sick, and we pray for all who are suffering. We ask God that you bring healing and comfort. And so we remember today Sue Forsythe, Elizabeth Garnett, Linda Gibbs, Gargaganius, Wayne Noble, and Sandy Reynolds. And finally, Father, we give thanks for the stewardship that you've entrusted to our church with all of our young children. And God, we ask that you would bless the children of this church and the youth who grow up here, that they would see that they are the fulfillment of this great promise to Abraham. And Lord, we ask that they would hold fast to your promises, that as they grow up here, that they would place their hope in you, that they would look to Jesus, the object of faith, and they know what it is to be counted righteous before you. And so, God, as they cling to that promise, may they grow and mature. Will we see the fulfillment of all of these great promises as they grow up to be a next generation of the church and that children and children's children would be believing and rejoicing in you? Watch over them and keep them. All these things we pray in the name of our Lord Jesus, who taught us to pray, saying, our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen.